success I would say is enjoying your life that's a different picture for everyone and uh it's hard to often find people that have the same vision of that as you I think the biggest problem is is finding people that have encouraging stories about what their life is that happen to intersect with what you want your life to be. This is Louis Gilmore, a clarinet player hailing from Eugene, Oregon, and a friend I made during a rehearsal for Aaron Copland's Appalachian Spring performance we both played in several years ago. He holds a bachelor's degree in clarinet performance from University of Michigan, an artist diploma from the Glenn Gould School at the Royal Conservatory in Toronto, Canada, and a master's degree in clarinet performance from Northwestern University in Chicago. Since 2017, he's been a part of the president's own United States Marine Band in Washington, D.C., who perform for important people like the president and other special guests. In our conversation today, we talked about playing in an army band, reasons to study abroad, challenges freelancing musicians face, and quality of life, and how to search for it. So, without further ado, welcome to Recovering Musicians. Let's jump in my conversation with Lewis. So, I was wondering, Lewis, whether we may be able to get this out of the way first. Like, for the people who don't know, what does the President's Marine Band do? Uh, well, it's, uh, it was founded in 1798, so it's actually the oldest, like, musical organization in the U.S., which is pretty cool. Um, it was done by an act of Congress. They basically realized that the president needed music and they decided it was so important they were going to create this whole ensemble um, of Marines that their jo our job is to, to provide music for the president and also the commandant of the Marine Corps, who's the head of the... So it's an army band. Yeah, it's like, it's, I forget what the, what the other branches are called, but it would be like the head general or the head admiral or something mm -hmm. like it, he's he's that person for us so that is our technically that is our full job is to provide those things of course the over it is our 225th anniversary this year so over 225 years the job has changed um uh and now we do a bunch more um concerts as well as military ceremonies in dc mm -hmm. we provide music for fallen marines at arlington national cemetery for their funerals we go on tour every year to bring the marine band to a different part of the country um, so that people not just outside of dc get to experience it and uh, we're also growing our educational reach um, there was a big push to go digital during the pandemic, and uh, we've kept a lot of that. So we're really trying to show the, the rest of the country, especially, and the world, too, that uh, we're, we're good musicians, and our job is to provide music for the president, but we want to share our musical gifts with more people. This is a great overview. Uh, you're really <laughs> well prepared to speak about the Marine Band. So um, do you get to rehearse in the White House? We don't rehearse there. We well, sometimes we go and we will practice for um, larger events there. But um, we we are based in in Southeast DC, right near the Navy Yard, and just a few blocks from our our friends in the the Navy's band in DC. Um, but at Washington, Marine Barracks, Washington, which is also the oldest Marine base in the country, it's uh, where the Commandant lives and his house 
for their house was uh, one of the few buildings that didn't burn down in the War of 1812. So it's actually one of the oldest buildings you see. Wow. Yeah. And you can see it. It's right on the street. So it's a big white house on uh, 8th and G Streets southeast. Okay. Um, I'll make a note to go check it out. Maybe I can post a picture of something. Um, in a few words, just a few words, like how is it different from playing in an orchestra? I think a lot of people are wondering that. Yeah, well, there's a lot. I mean, it's it's very different. Um, I'd say the biggest difference is the because of what our job is, provide music for whatever anyone wants. I do not play in the same ensemble every week. Like the size and the instrumentation of the ensemble is constantly changing when I'm being asked to do. So we play like most famously, probably, especially on the internet, is our full concert band. Right, that's what I imagine. Right, which is different from orchestra, just in the sound and the instruments involved, and how many people are in your section, which, especially as a wood woodwind player, feels very different. But we also have a full chamber orchestra, which forms by itself. We have many different Latin, jazz, pop bands and all sorts of fusion and everything in between things like we we do a lot of marching which involves very various different sizes of of and combinations of instruments but they're certainly much smaller funerals we play with 21 people and uh was oh chamber music that's a huge part of our job i would say that overall if you're thinking about this job it you probably think oh my gosh, it's a military job. It's not flexible. Like, that's what I'm scared about. I would say it is far more flexible than any major orchestra job. We don't have three concerts every weekend, 50 weeks a year. Like, that is not what we're doing. And so it's a it's a very different schedule, and it usually is a, a good one. There are, there are hard days. You know, we're not a union organization. So um, some... Some days are very long and, and difficult, and there are other days that are just great. So Yeah, that's a great insight, especially about that flexibility. That's not what I think anybody thinks about. I think people think maybe marching, yeah, and like they think a big performance, yeah. I don't know, Christmas or some kind of event, and that's kind of what they are exposed to. And so, yeah, as musicians look at that as well, they're probably exposed to the same thing. So what I'm thinking is, you know, I want to take us back to college just for a moment. And I wanted to ask, first of all, what made you choose to pursue a performance degree? Was Clownet something you always wanted to pursue? Was it always clear? Was that the goal? I don't know. I, I, I Everyone was asked the question and like, I want to know about other people too. But like, I didn't have some like light bulb moment where I was like, today's the day I've decided that. I'm going to play clarinet for the rest of my life. I just, I don't know. I was most interested in it and I thought it was fun and I thought I was good at it. That helps. And um, well, at least the thinking part. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing, I just started doing it more and more. And then it became a bigger and bigger part of my life to the point where I was like, oh, I guess I could keep doing this. And I went to a, uh, music camp actually in high school in vermont what's a music camp it's like a summer thing okay so like it they have you know summer music festivals that have big names that attract young professionals all the time but they also have them for younger students and i had been to like you know week-long things in my hometown where i just went home to my parents house at the end of the day 
but this was like six weeks long. It was across the country. You stay there. And that was the first time I was really like immersed in community where it's all musicians and that's what we did all the time. Um, and I didn't know this then, but when you go to music school for college, that's what you're doing. Like, yes, you have to take other classes and that sort of thing. But like, like the music school is a small, um, small world entity. Yeah. It's a small, small world. And your school specifically is an even smaller world. And I think, um, like I went, I was, I was worried, I think when I went to a school with 40,000 students that it was going to feel overwhelming, but the music school, including dance and theater and everything else, was only 1,000. And that was actually smaller than my high school. So it's like, there's, there's definitely a built-in sense that you go to a specialized school for college. And I think it is really helpful and something that people outside of it don't realize. And maybe people that are inside of it, we take it for granted. But I think it makes a big difference having that to, you know, transformational period in your life. And I am still friends with lots of people I went to college with, even though it was 15 years ago. So, so when I went to college, I didn't really have any goals or aspirations other than I just wanted to get better at my instrument. I wanted to be around other people who do music and maybe study with a specific teacher. Yeah. Was it the same for you? Did you have any goals or motives? I mean, they, they always ask you that, you know, why are you going to school here? What do you want to do with your life? And where do you see yourself in five years? And I think I just always said an orchestra because it was the easy, obvious choice. And I did really want to do that, but I also had very little awareness of things and was like, wow, I got into music school. Okay, that was the hard part. Little did I know that that was not the hard part. <laughs> like, that was, right. it's just the beginning. Yeah, it was just the beginning. So, um, yeah, but I wanted to be around people that were doing music. How did you end up in Canada? Tell me about that. Well, actually, I have to especially tell you, I had a countless number of people asking me if I was moving to London and why I decided to go to, because people didn't know that the Royal Conservatory is different than the Royal Academy. And so... Right, because they hear Royal in the name. Right, people hear Royal and they think they think London. And uh, it really just showed me how little people in America knew about foreign music schools, which was sad. Um, but that was, that was a case of a specific teacher so I didn't, like, I didn't go to college in the conservatory as part of this huge university, which, like I said before, it was a small music school, so it still felt small, but it was, it would, I knew it would be a totally different experience, but um, there's a very specific teacher there um, who I wanted to study with. Um, I also, you know, when I signed up for music school, for, I didn't know that most people go get graduate degrees afterwards. And my parents sure as heck didn't know. And we're like, what do you mean you're not going to start working after four years? And I was like, yeah, this is a surprise to me too. Um, and uh, one of the great things about going to school in a place like Canada is that it is a lot cheaper than the US. And so um, that was a big draw. So yeah, I went to, I. I went to visit. I had a lesson with the teacher. I loved it. We had a great audition that um, it was not on one of the scheduled days. So I was the only one auditioning that day, which I can't say that like you'll always be the only one, but if you can get a special audition day, the teacher is like 500% more involved with your specific thing that day. 
And uh, so I also, I still remember there's uh, another clarinetist who's slightly older than me. I didn't really know very well. I think I'd only met her once or twice. And like, we were friends on Facebook or something. But um, I saw her that day and in the morning. And she was like, do you want to go get lunch? And having having that like hour to just like relax and remember that everyone is just, this is all just people, I think it's a big deal. So if you know someone, even like vaguely, Get in touch with them. Get in touch with them if you're going to be there. I tell people this at least if they're coming to D.C. all the time, or especially if they're auditioning. What was it that attracted you to that teacher? Well, I didn't actually know that much about him beforehand. I knew he had this reputation, um, and I knew his students did really well. And my my current teacher at that point was, like, very good friends with him, and it was like, he absolutely would, he would be excellent, excellent, excellent for you. Um, and thankfully he has quite a few recorded things. And so I started listening to his recordings and I was like, wow. And he did, he, he was part of two like chamber groups as well as being principal of Toronto Symphony. And I was like, yeah, this guy seems to have it. Did you see in him something that you saw yourself doing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel the same way about teachers that I and most people I know wanted to study with. They see themselves um, sort of in their shoes a little bit. I hadn't really thought about that, but I think that's really true. Okay, so you finished your diploma. And then I'm interested to see, once you graduated, did you feel ready for the big world out there? Ready to pursue, you know, freelancing and other things? I did. I This is actually probably the most interesting. Basically, bec- another thing with that school being so small is... Uh, most Canadian universities that are larger um, will offer you a temporary work permit after you graduate. Yeah, is it two years to find a job? Yeah, but because the school is so small, they didn't offer that. And so because I didn't have a full-time job in Canada, I couldn't stay there. So for the first time in my life, I had to choose where I wanted to live. So I decided to move to Chicago. I had an aunt and uncle that lived there that were very kind and said you can live in our house for as long as you want because I also had no money so that was a challenge um so I moved to Chicago and didn't really know what I was going to do I kept taking auditions not particularly successfully at first but I basically got in contact with as many people as I could other musicians other musicians that I knew I googled every orchestra I could find within about three or four hours of drive. And I emailed every single personnel manager and sent them my resume and said, I would love to be put on your sub list. Please let me. Did you hear back? I did. Quite a few of them said, great, we'll add you to it. And I never heard from them again, which I don't think they were lying. I just think most orchestras have very long sub lists um, already. Um, some said we're ha- we have sub auditions like every two years we'll let you know when the next one is a few said this is the email for our principal clarinetist get in contact with them and those ones I got gigs out because I went and played for them and they were like oh you're not just a random person like you sound good I also emailed every band director within an hour and said do you need a clarinet teacher for your student 
do you have any students? I can come to your school and teach in your school. And so I had maybe three or four schools I went to every week and would try and teach several students. It was not a great way to make a living and I still had no money, but I was doing things. I also, I, at that time, I had a, I have a good friend who went to Northwestern after Toronto. We were in school in Toronto together and he was going there for flute actually. Um, and so I started going to visit him because I just, I had just, you know, spent two years li living in the same city and was so excited that I was still going to get to see him all the time. And so I started hanging out with all of them and I was like, oh, this seems like a good school. And, and most importantly, it was a way to make more connections in the area. Um, and there's a lot of musicians that I think end up staying where they went to school afterwards. They still live there. And I think it's, it's totally makes sense. I mean, you've, you've spent years in contact with the best musicians in the area at your school and with fellow performers. And you have all these resources that you wouldn't necessarily have if you went somewhere else. Um, what I don't think is that common is that people plan for that. And so I, I, thinking back on it now, I think especially if you're going to go to grad school for a performance degree, think about where it is. Geographically? Yeah. There are a lot of really, really good music schools in small college towns that already have 500 alumni living. And the challenges that you would face in trying to bridge the gap between student and professional, and that's maybe harder than in a bigger city. I think that the one exception for that city, New York, it's such a destination for musicians that there's already so many. But also, if you're from there, you, you know, keep in touch with connections. If you went there for undergrad and you want to move back, keep those connections going. I had friends that would that would say, don't tell people I'm moving because I still want to get gigs in the city. And I was like, absolutely. I totally understand. Like, you've got to do what you've got to do. So. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the challenges mm -hmm. that music graduates face. Because for me, it was a little bit like a blank slate. Like, I kind of felt like there wasn't really anything waiting for me when I graduated. There wasn't yeah. a really defined path. And every opportunity that I could have built on, I built through college, right? Through my network. And a lot of them actually happened outside classes. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of those connections were gigs or other musicians inviting me to play or me inviting them to play. So that's what it was like. But yeah, talk to me about the challenges facing music graduates. I mean, opportunities, I think, is the biggest one. Yes, I, I totally agree. That was all the same for me. And the, I mean, the biggest problem for us as music grads is just like with any other career right now, like in the last 20 years, people basically will skip over your resume if you don't have the experience to already do the job. And the problem is, how do you get any of that so that you have something that they will pay attention to? Oh, they might actually know what they're doing because that's the, unfortunately, that's the only thing people look at. They, you know, people think like, yeah, if it says, you know, I have 14 degrees from Juilliard on my resume, like, sure, that, that may work better than if the person has never heard of the music school you went to. But like, really what matters is they want to see that you have been successful. Yeah. 
And the irony of it is that you're looking for that experience and you're not getting it. So how can you show that you have been exactly. successful? It is the, it is the biggest catch 22 and the hardest part. And that is actually why I went to Northwestern is because I knew for two more years, I could postpone having to deal with that and have a chance to make more, more connections so that I wouldn't feel as lost or as new as I did in that year in between. And again, doing it, I would, I would highly recommend that, uh, do not, you try not to pay for your graduate education. The one thing I would say, um, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this anyway, is like the, the fitting together of freelance schedules and the challenges of that. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Because the number of gigs I have had to turn down because I'm already busy is enormous. I would say then and now in DC, probably half I have to say no to because I'm already, I'm already working. Right. And in Chicago too. And it's, it's really annoying because it would be something like one day's worth of rehearsals conflicted. And that's why you can't do it. But I think it's, I think that is one of the greatest challenges to freelance life as a musician. And people don't talk about it because you can't accept every job you get. And so then the issue becomes not the number of gigs getting, but are they well paid enough that you, that you, the number that you can accept, do they pay? And at the, at, even in those six months I was doing this, I was beginning to realize, no, most of these gigs are not paying enough. And so I had to keep teaching 15 students a week. I had to keep doing that music school job because it was like, I can't, even if I got a different gig every week, if the gig only pays $300, that's not enough. It's not enough for everything. It's really nice to get that $300 for doing a couple of rehearsals and a church holiday show. But like, and I think part of that is, is it, it's not that it's impossible, because, but it's the best paying freelance gigs are the ones taken by the people that have been doing it for the longest. And unless you can break into that through the connection talking about earlier that you gain while you're in school or um, just by sticking it out for long enough, which is a gamble already, uh, it's hard to get them. It's really hard to get them. Yeah. It's interesting because I never had a full-time freelancing schedule where every single day was busy with a performance. And I suspect I'm not alone in this. But I always imagine that, well, that's where it's at. That's the goal. Once I get there, I'll be fine. Like, I'm not intending to be rich or anything. Right. But I'll be okay, you know? Like, I wouldn't have to struggle. So it's a bit of a shock to hear that you can, you know, work full-time, basically, maybe even overtime, and still find it difficult. And the advice I heard most, probably, like, in college, well, you just have to keep doing this. And I always thought, well, how am I going to afford to keep doing this? I'm working full time already. I don't yeah. have any more hours in my day to dedicate to this. Well, and also, I think one of the things about doing something like this, where you theoretically have gone into doing it because you like it so much, is that people then think, well, why, why would you have a problem spending every waking hour doing it? And it still works, even if you're enjoying it some of the time. You're not enjoying it all the time. I don't think any professional musician is enjoying their musical life all the time. And so you can't do it every waking hour. I remember coming home those nights 
after I had gotten up, gone to teach for three hours in a school lessons, driven 45 minutes to my music school job, sat in an office, not playing clarinet, probably looking up gigs or auditions. And you come home and you're completely exhausted. You just sit on the couch and turn the TV on for two hours and then go to bed. And I don't think there's anyone that would say that you shouldn't be able to have those two hours to yourself. Yeah, but the music profession is not conducive to that. Right. People will say, well, you're not hustling hard enough. And I think that burnout is a very real thing. And I don't think, I think that's normal. I think as humans, that is the natural reaction to the amount of pressure most musicians put on themselves. I don't think any, you know, software engineer that loves doing their job wants to do it for 16 hours a day. I think some of them are forced to, but yeah. And that was something I didn't, I didn't realize until I got this job and moved here. I was like, oh, I don't have any hobby. My entire life has been music. And my hobby has been doing it for fun when I have a moment and some spare energy and get to do it the way I want to do it versus what I need to for a gig or what I'm trying to get better at. I realized that people that are not in this profession have time off. Yeah, close to God and, and secret. Yeah, I know. But it's like, a, it's a big thing. And I, I seriously, I was, I was very, very seriously considering not doing music anymore. Because the thought of being able to leave my job at 5 p.m. on a Friday and not have to think about work, even if it's work I enjoy for 48 hours, while also getting paid probably more than you'd make as a musician, it's very compelling. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with wanting that for your life. And these are all things that like, you should be able to do. And there's so much guilt around a lot. If I had just tried a little bit harder, maybe I would. So, so much of the music profession is out of your control that you can't beat yourself up about it. One of the questions for me and for this podcast is what does success look like? Because I think as performers, yeah. we were sold the type of success, which usually involves playing in the orchestra, maybe doing chamber music, some teaching. But, you know, those are the people that we see succeed. And it builds an expectation that if you do anything else at all, you are a failure. Yeah. Yeah. No, success, I would say, is enjoying your life. That's a different picture for everyone. And uh, it's hard still to often find people that have the same vision of that as you. Um, but I would absolutely say my in my job, I am not, like, I, I don't consider what I'm doing that day to be a successful, what a successful musician would be doing, you know? Like, I'm standing, waiting to play a hymn at a funeral, and it's 98 degrees out, and I'm wearing a full wool outfit, and sweating, and my feet are burning, and I'm wondering, is this really what, like a successful musician would be doing. But then I'm done with that after 45 minutes and I get to come home 
end of the day and I still get paid the same amount and I get to take my dog for a walk and cook what I want to for dinner or or go to a restaurant or let you know so I think the biggest problem is that there is is finding people that have encouraging stories about what their life is that happen to intersect with what you want your life to be. And then also at the same time, realizing for yourself what you actually like and what you don't like. And the problem is that a lot of times I think we need to experience that before we realize it, both the liking and the liking. So uh, it's not, it's not an easy world we live in. And uh, there are no, there are very few times when you have a, a cut and dry path ahead. And uh, every situation and every person is different. I agree with you. I think it's important to remember to enjoy what you do. Yeah. And enjoy your life and have something yeah. that allows you to do it rather than trying to live up to some image of, say, playing in the orchestra to consider yourself being successful. Yeah, enjoying enjoying your life doesn't mean enjoying every moment of your life, but it means overall, are you happy with the quality of your life and with what you're doing? And there are trade-offs to everything. There are so few people that have the exact perfect dream thing that they've always wanted to do that you, and that's not just in music, that's just in general, you can't count on that. I would also say there are so incredibly few people that end up doing what they exactly what they thought they were going to do when they entered college and turned 18. That you can't count on that. And the people that have both of those things are like, I don't know, a handful of musicians. So there's a lot of other factors to consider. There's a lot of choices to be made. And there's a lot of right choices that don't necessarily correspond with each other and so there's not one right way to be a musician successful or otherwise so you've got to find what works for you and like you said the hardest part is managing physically emotionally financially until you find a good balance recovering musicians shares our collective story in music our successes, failures, and wisdom gained along the way. The best way to support this project is to share it with another person. Please subscribe and follow Recovering Musicians on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date. I look forward to bringing you the next episode in about a month's time.